Good morning. morning. All right, there we go. Uh, Glad to be here with you. My name is Jason Keel, and uh, uh, Happy New Year. Are you awake? (laughs) It was kind of a, I'm sure you're still tired and recovering from New Year's, right? From jet lag, some of you, right? Yeah. Well, this this time of year, people are asking questions. What am I going to do? Is a question. Uh, What changes do I want to make in my life? There are other questions. Do you make New Year's resolutions? Some of you do. Uh, And uh, also some other questions we begin to ask because it just seems like this is that time of year. Um, And one of the big questions that everybody runs into sooner or later is the question of why am I here? What is is all of it for? Um, And you look around and you see people answering this question. Maybe they're answering it with their words or or with their actions all the time. Um, But the idea is people are answering the question through all kinds of means. Um, Some people are looking into philosophy to answer the question, why are we here? Others are looking into religion. Uh, And then there are others who want to justify their existence through activity. Uh, In fact, I'm I'm pretty sure that most of us are on some level, uh, maybe unconsciously, trying to justify our our existence through our activities. Um, I mean, just ask any man, who are you? And they'll tell you their name, and then they'll tell you what they do. All right, so most of us, on on some level, this is what we're we're doing. And uh, some of our activities might be, you know, relational activities, you know, influencing people, um, leadership, teaching, um, making friends, just, you know, having some influence in other people's lives. Um, Then there's also activities that have to do with, you know, making things. You're actually doing something that's tangible, like uh, selling things, making things, repairing things, healing people, um, making money. These are activities by which, you know, we, we go about some, some means of justifying our existence. Why are we here? Well, I do this. This is why I'm here. And some of us are just chasing that indefinable word, success. And it means something a little bit different to everybody, I think. Um, but the mere fact that everybody is so busy doing something points to a deep-seated need to prove yourself. You need to prove yourself to yourself that you can do it, that you can make it, or to prove yourself to another person whose approval that you love, that you want, that you seek. Um, And we're looking for justification. That's what we're looking for. We want to be be right with people. We want them to see us as right and good and worthwhile. And we also, if you believe in God, you want to see yourself as right and good and worthwhile with God. Um, now, a second question that is often asked, uh, either in tandem with the first question or, you know, along the same line of thought is, what's wrong with the world? Because, you know, you, you find your meaning, whatever it is, or you feel like you know your purpose or your mission, but you keep getting thwarted by the world, it seems like, or by circumstances or, or whatever. And so you, I often ask this question, what is wrong with the world? What is going on? Uh, this past month in the U.S., there was a tragic shooting in, in, a, in an elementary school. Twenty-plus small children were shot, um, killed, and some of their teachers as well. Um, at the same week, actually, here in China, there was a knife attack of similar, a similar type deal. There were less people killed because it was a knife, but it was still a guy. Some guy went and tried to kill all of these small children in this school. And you ask, what is wrong with the world that someone would do that? 
Uh, and lots of people are asking that question with the, these events. And there's lots of questions. There's lots of answers that people give. Most of the answers that I have heard, like reading on the internet or talking with people, these answers have to do with institutions. They, 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 the, the thing that's wrong with the world is some institutions. So they might say, I, I think it's the, it's the government. You know, the government, they're, they're, you know, they're not protecting us. And so we need more laws so that we'll be protected. Or we need new leaders who are going to come in and, and, and do things better. And people who think like me, and if they think like me and they get in power, then everything will be fine, right? I mean, Americans, we just had our election. And that's exactly what was going through all of our minds. You know, the person that I vote for, of course he's going to be the best. I mean, it'll be awesome. But does that happen? Does that, does that change everything? No, it doesn't. So I, I don't think the problem is in institutions. Um, then some people point to religion. There's a new group of people called the New Atheists. Been around for about a decade writing books. Um, guys like Sam Harris um, and um, some others, they're writing questions. They're writing books that are questioning whether God, the idea of God, is even good for humanity. And so um, there's one you should read. It's really interesting. It's called Letter to a Christian Nation by Sam Harris. And Harris uh, makes the, the case in his book that religion is actually not a good thing for anyone to do or follow. And he lists historical reasons why it's not a benefit for anyone. And he's writing to the, uh, the people in America who call themselves Christians. Specifically, he's addressing people who are kind of... Um, not super serious about their faith. And he's saying, you people are the problem. <laughs> Which is really strange to me that an atheist would say that. And he's saying, the other people, he says, they're, they're sincere, and you're enabling them to be sincere. And that's, you know, that's how he sees the problem. He's looking at this institution, this religion, and saying it's bad and it's causing things, and we need to get serious and either stamp it out or we need to get on board with it. But he, say, he says, I should, he thinks we should stamp it out. So, but I, I'm not sure religion is the problem either because you can also look at history and you can make the case that religion is actually quite a benefit in some other ways. Institution, I'm not sure that's a problem. Education, some people say. If we just educate everybody correctly and we, you know, all the kids go to school and we have good teachers and good funding and stuff like that, the world will be a better place. We'll, we'll raise better citizens. They'll make better choices and it'll be good. Um, I'm, an, I'm a teacher and there is some truth to that, but it's not the answer. Because we've been pouring money and training and time into education since we had education, and the world is still a mess, all right? So people benefit from it. Good, yeah. I mean, that's, that's why I'm in it. But I don't think that's the problem either. I think all of these, the idea that there's, the problem is in an institution is lo- overlooking one glaring problem and one glaring small detail. Do you know what that, pro- that, that detail is they're overlooking? Well, there are people in all of those institutions. (laughs) Every single institution, the common denominator in all of them, apart from the fact that there's something wrong, is that there are people in them. All right? So I'll come back to that in a few minutes. The Bible links these two questions together. The question of why are we here and then the question of what's wrong with the world that I can't fulfill my purpose. Let's look at the answer one answer given to the why we are here question is it's found in a 400-year-old discipleship tool called the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And so it's, it's got a great answer to the question, and, I, and I'll, I'm going to unpack it a little bit for you. The question is, what is the chief 
end of man. Okay, chief end meaning it's like a 400-year-old way of saying the reason for being of man or humanity. And the answer to the question that these Westminster uh, theologians give is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. All right, so they got this idea from the Bible, and there's a whole array of passages that I could share, but I just want to share two of them that, that kind of clearly show these two ideas. So first, we are created for God's glory, and you find this idea very clearly stated in Revelation 4.11. In the, it's a scene in heaven, you've got all these people, and, and they're, they're all praising the Lord, and here's what they say. They say we're, actually, they're angels who are saying this. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. All right, so he, it's for him. Uh, we're, we're created in his image. We're like mirrors. We're to reflect his glory back to him and to the rest of the world, okay? But if that were all of it, that would seem like kind of a cold thing. Like God would be like, yeah, it's all about me, baby, you know? It doesn't seem quite right, all right? So there's the second part really sort of wraps it up really nicely. Um, the second part is for your enjoyment, okay? And, and Psalm 1611 says this quite beautifully. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. When you think about that, you couple glorification of God with pleasure and with enjoyment and uh, with fulfillment. And sitting at his right hand is sort of a symbol of saying, you're my favored child. I, I love you. Um, so our reason for being is twofold. It's to reflect back God's glory. And by doing that, we will gain, we will gain the greatest joy and pleasure that you could possibly imagine. And s- now, some people, myself included, the first time I read this, would object. This makes God sound like a glory hound. It makes God sound arrogant. I mean, why? I mean, he did all this trouble to save people and create the church and do good for the world. Surely it's, it's more, not just all about him. I mean, right? I'm not sure. Let me ask some diagnostic questions to think about this, this through. Who's the most glorious and amazing person in the universe? God, okay, all right, I think we can all, we can all agree on that. I, I, it's not me, okay, so, all right. Second, who deserves glory and honor more than God? No one. Is God perfect and incapable of error? I think most of the religions of the world would, would say that, okay? So if these three things are true, if God's the most glorious, if he deserves the glory the most, and he can't make an error, then he should give glory to himself. He should create everything for himself because anything less would make him not perfect and it would make him not God. All right? And yet, in the midst of all that, he created us to fit perfectly within his creation, which will bring us the best joy, the best satisfaction that you can imagine. So, as we ask these two questions... Why am I here? And then, what's wrong with the world? We have to acknowledge that we are hindered from getting to this glorious pleasure we can derive in God. The world is is messed up. I'm messed up. We're all messed up. The world is messed up. So what's wrong with the world? I think the Bible's answer to that question is, people are what's wrong with the world. (laughs) Okay? Sinful people, which includes all of us. Uh, In Romans chapter 3, Uh, Starting in verse 
10, uh, that second half of it, I just want to read to you a description of human nature left to its own devices. Okay, this is human nature apart from God's grace and work. Okay, here's, here's what we are like if God were to just let us go. Here we go. Ready? None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have, have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. So that every mouth can be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. So he's letting us know this to give us a reality check. It's, the problem in the world is not found in institutions. It's found in us. We need to be responsible for it. And just, just own it for, for, for a time and, and have this reality check. In verse 20, he continues, For by the works of law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through law comes knowledge of sin. Now, this passage right here is speaking specifically of religious practices trying to justify you before God. But I think you can apply the principle across the board to all kinds of attempts to justify your existence whether that means relationally with other people and by gaining their approval or by doing good work so that you gain the approval of people in the world or by getting success or any of the other things I've talked about. All of these things point to the fact that we are too broken, we're too problematic for creation in order to justify ourselves adequately in any form or fashion. We are hampered in our attempt to do all, to justify our existence because of our sin. Our sin... Um, it's, it's not just our sin that we do, but it's, there's something inside of us where it comes from. Um, we can't be declared right because we can't do enough. We are sinful by our very nature, I think. And I think that's what this pastor is saying. There's something inside of you from the moment you're born that's been twisted and broken. Our sinful nature and our sins hamper our search for meaning. Uh, we fail ourselves. We hinder each other through selfishness and deceit, theft and violence. Even on small levels in our family, some of these things, and in large levels as a society. Look at the world, and you'll see it's true. So people are what's wrong with the world. Okay? Institutions are only a problem insofar as how many people they contain. That's really sad, isn't it? No matter how many people you get together, it just multiplies the sin, all right? And uh, that's one of the wonderful things about God's grace, is that he's working to counteract that. We bring our sinful nature, and that sin produces sin in every activity. So what can we do? How do we come right or justified? Uh, I think we can narrow the options of, in, down to three options that people have chosen. So these are three ways that people try to become right, to be justified. The first one, I justify myself, all right? Uh, it works righteousness is sort of a church word for that, or church term for that. Many religions and philosophies teach this. For example, Islam is a classic example. There's, there's an array of teachings and, 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 and laws, and you, you follow them, and you gain paradise. Um, Buddhism. Follow the Eightfold Path. 
uh, and you will enrich enlightenment. You do this through a, a, the, an array of religious and philosophical activity. Um, then there's Confucianism, which is a philosophy of life that elevates honor and goodness and right behavior. Um, even capitalism would fall into this because you work really hard at your job and you become a success and people admire you. And now you've reached the pinnacle. I mean, there's nothing spiritual about capitalism, at least in and of itself, apart from God and his working. But still, capitalism can be this kind of thing. I'm justifying myself before the world. I'm a success. I'm good in business. All right? So that's the first way I justify myself. Second, I cooperate with God. Okay? Now, if you believe in God, um, then um, you, some groups of people would say, you know, I, God saves me. And then I cooperate with him to reach heaven. Um, one, a, a classic example of this is um, many of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church would seem to point this way. Um, many liberal Protestant denominations and churches also uh, seem to say this by with what things that they say about how you get to heaven and how you become right with God. Um, and many of these folks and I, who I love and admire, I've talked with them about this. And, and the idea that, that I gather from them is that, of course, Jesus died for you. Of course he did. And, of course, you need that. But you also need to do this and that. Um, you also have to follow his example, and you have to be a good person. And that's the only way to be sure that you'll make it into his good graces. It's the only way to be sure if you're justified. Now, only then can you make sure that you have a right relationship. The only problem with is this. I think the Bible t- paints a much more stark and dark picture of the human heart and our condition in sin than this view would seem to teach. Um, this view would seem to me to sort of give a wink and a nod to our sin and say, oh, it's okay, God, God will, you know, it'll be fine. Just keep being a good person. Just keep trying hard. And I'm not sure that that is an accurate portrait of what's really how broken I am. Now, there's a third option. Okay, and this option is God saves us and empowers us to persevere. All right, notice it's it's God who's doing the saving, it's God who's, do, who's doing the empowering. All right, and and this is a classic Protestant point, uh, point of view. I happen to think that it's also one that's most clearly taught in the Bible. So I'd like to spend the remainder of our time unpacking this idea that your salvation, the re, your justification, your right to relationship with God, the only possibility of it are totally, totally God. He has to do it for you, and he has to bring you along as he does it. So if you have a Bible, uh, turn to Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. Uh, if you don't, it's going to be on the overhead projector. Um, this is Jesus himself, uh, his most clear teaching on justification that I could find. So starting in verse 9 in Luke 18, Jesus told, he sells a, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And you can imagine him kind of nodding his head toward this guy who's probably standing pretty close to him. So, I fast twice a week. I give tithes to, of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, 
but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So as, as the parable says, Jesus tells this parable to people who trusted in their own righteousness to, in order to make them justified with God. The Pharisee had a religious righteousness. Um, and if you notice in the, in, the, in, the, in the parable, he's saying, God, I thank you that I am righteous. So in some level, he's, he's, he believes that God gave him his righteousness. Because right? you wouldn't thank God for something that he hadn't given you, would you? If it was all you, I'm not sure that he would even pray this prayer. So I'm thinking that at least he's acknowledging that God gave him the ability to accept righteousness and become righteous. But that's where it ends because then he starts praying in front of everyone so everyone can hear about how well he's doing with this righteousness that God has given. And he's doing it in such a way to reflect on him rather than on God. He even goes so far as to boast and to point to a particular person and contrast himself with that, which is a danger uh, of this point of view. Um, the, st- the tax collector is a stark contrast. He's, he knows he's not righteous, and he simply cries out for mercy, knowing he can't do anything. He's helpless. And Jesus points to this extreme example as the pattern. He's saying, this is the one. The tax collector is the one who goes home justified. The other one does not. Even though there was religiousness, and even though there was an acknowledgement of God's sovereignty and goodness, the tax collector is justified. Now, if the other two, I justify myself and I cooperate with God, were true, I think the parable would have had a different ending. Don't you? I think it would have ended this way. The Pharisee would be justified, and Jesus would have used the tax collector as an example of how you don't need to be, and then maybe thrown in a bit about how he became better through, you know, more Bible study and hanging out with the Pharisee maybe and getting discipled or something. But I don't think he would have said, that guy right over there who has this hopeless, he's the one who's justified. It would have been a different one. Jesus has a radically different way of dealing with our non-justification. What Jesus does is he takes our sins for us and he justifies us. Um, the Apostle Paul does a really good job in several of his books where he describes exactly how this works. In 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, chapter 5, verse 21, Paul says it like this. He says, For our sake he, Jesus, made him to be God, sorry, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. All right. So that's a really strange thing to say. It, it doesn't quite go in our, our way of expressing things. So let me, let me try to make that a little bit more clear. The, this is called, in theological terms, double imputation. And what Jesus does is Jesus has all this righteousness because he's the son of God and because he never sins. He gives it to us. And then he takes away our sinful nature and our unrighteousness and puts it on himself. Think of it like having a really terrible debt. For those of you who have ever been in debt, lots and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars or renminbi or whatever it is that you, that you have. And so you've got all this debt, and so this really rich person comes along and not only gives you the money to, to take the debt and to take care of the debt, but he takes your credit score your reputation as a bad, um, as someone you don't want to lend money to, and he puts it on himself. And now you've got this fat savings account, 
And he, it looks like a terrible risk for a bank to give a loan to. That's what Jesus did. Jesus takes all the stuff that you have, the bad stuff, and he, he, he says, I, this is me. No, no, it's me. And then he stands before God and says, I'm the, the guilty one. I'm the guilty one. And then God, the judge, even though he knows this is his son, he declares, he says, right, okay? This one over here, he's righteous. And you over here, you are not. And Jesus takes that, and then he, he dies with all that mess on himself in the cross. And he bears it for us. Um, Paul explains further in Galatians 2, verses 15 and 16. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So he's contrasting people who are very religious with people who are very, very not. And he's saying, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because, of works of, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we're not justified by doing things, by works, as he calls it. We're justified by faith, by trust in Christ. Christ's perfection is credited to you. And you simply believe and trust. And that's all. However, before we give ourselves credit for making a good decision, because we could go, all right, that sounds like a great deal. Here. But... You don't even get credit, we don't even get credit for making that good decision, okay? Because we are so broken that we probably wouldn't want to make that decision apart from God. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, verse 8 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and this, the whole package, is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. So, so God, we're granted God's unmerited favor. Uh, I heard it said this way, and I think it works better. Not just God's unmerited favor, but God's demerited favor. Do you know what a demerit is? I don't know if you know this. In some school systems, they judge your, uh, they, they, they manage your discipline by giving you demerits. And you earn a certain amount of points. And if you have a fewer amount of points, then there are benefits. And if you have more points, then there are punishments. And so you don't want to get demerits. Demerits are bad. It means you stay after school for detention for 45 minutes. Or you have to wash boards or write your name 100,000 times or something like that. Or I will not talk in such and such a class. Those are what demerits earn. We have demerits for our sin. Jesus comes along and takes our demerits on himself and gives us his, his, his merit and says... I love you. You're clear. I'll take it for you. And so God gets his wrath on Jesus, not on us. Because now we have no demerits. But we couldn't do that unless God gave us the ability to have faith with his grace. Back in Romans, last part. In Romans 3, again, continuing on with verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation. That means a sacrifice of atonement, like in the Old Testament sense, um, in his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Paul says very clearly, God justifies us through the redemption accomplished by Jesus in his death. And that's it. It's not our good decision. It's not our good works. And it's not our cooperation. It's Jesus' finished work on the cross. It's the only way to justify your existence. It's the only way to make you right with God. It's the only way to see meaning and purpose in life. And to add to that, to think that you could add to that, it's not only useless, because it's all done. It's all done. But it's demeaning to Jesus. Think about it. If someone went to all the trouble to do something amazing for you, some gift that's perfect, and when you gave it to them and they went, well, I like it, but, you know, you could have done this too. How does that make you feel? That's how Jesus looks at the I cooperate with you deal or the I justify myself deal. You've got this gift, it's given, it's presented to you, and he's going, here, it's perfect. It's exactly what you need. And you're going, well, but I can still take care of this part. No, can't. I think we need a reality check. I know I do. So, conclusion. Everyone is a search for meaning. Everyone is searching for meaning. But most of us, all of us, really, at some point, we're, we're looking in the wrong places. Even those of us who got us saved, we get our attention off of him, and we're putting it on our families, which is not a bad thing. But sometimes we make them our gods or our work. But our work is not our God. God is our God. He deserves all the credit for all the meaning and purpose and justification and rightness you could possibly have. Meaning is only found in him because he created you with a purpose. And when you're focused on his glory, the purpose seems to fall into place because that is the purpose. You will experience joy and contentment like you've never known. They will last, and it will, it will be there as a foundation for you. Second, you can't justify yourself. I can't justify myself. No one can justify themselves. It's impossible. All you can, also, you cannot add anything to what God has done. Don't demean Christ by doing that. And don't expend useless effort. Don't, don't do that. You don't need to. Just rest in it and, and glory in it and roll around in it and just you know, dance in it, whatever you want to do, because it's done. And there's nothing else you need. And now you just follow that joy on to the next thing. And if, I, many of you are probably trying to make decisions about your future or you're trying to make decisions about your family. Put God's glory first. It's like putting on glasses when you can't see. Things begin to come into focus. And you'll find that, you, that you, you, maybe you didn't need something you thought you did or some other option. If you know Christ, that's my challenge for you this morning. Rest in his, in, in his finished work. It's, it's done and it's fun. If you fall in one of the other two camps I've described um, and, and you've been living life in such a way that it's just been, you've been hard trying to justify yourself. The good news for you is, is this, that you don't have to do anything to join. This family is open. You're invited in to become a son of God, a child, an heir, 
And it, we're not expecting you to give money or we're not expecting you to, to give all your time or any of those things. But just, just do it. And he, once you get in, it's amazing. We want you to join us. So let me pray for you. Father, thank you for opening the doors. Thank you for making us just and right in your sight, even though we are still a work in progress and, and we are still a mess. I'm so thankful that you are that kind of loving God. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to get it all right before I join your family. And I'm thankful that you don't leave us alone either afterwards, but that you, you work with us and you draw us to yourself. This year, Lord, we ask that you'll show us our meaning. Um, in your glory and in the enjoyment of that. Uh, Show us the specifics of that. Show us what you want us to do and how to follow you. Lord, we also ask that you would uh, give us the joy and the contentment that comes with resting in you. And Lord, if there's something that we're holding on tightly to, that we are looking for uh, meaning in and purpose and joy, we pray, Lord, that you will, like a parent, remove that from us so that we can know what's best and we can rest in you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.